0: Hello there, and welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host Rob Warner, joined by Max Madden. How are you today, Max?
1: Doing great. Coming uh, coming off that trip from Washington, the best state in the country, so it's been it's been
0: good. It's there you go. <laughs> well, we got Kalen Jones saying, "Debatable." Kalen, how's your uh, your Wednesday your Tuesday afternoon treating you? I'm good, man. How you been? Been good. Fabian Ardaya.
2: Uh, just defending the merits of Black Mirror as a TV show. You should watch the new season. It's really good.
0: I will get right on that. And our site publisher, Chris Cartman. How's it going, Chris? I would recommend
3: San Junipero, but don't watch the (laughs) Black Echo in order. Uh, Find out which ones are the most well-received or reviewed, then watch those ones. It's an anthology. You're not going to mess up by not watching it in order. Yeah, Yeah, we might start just
0: reviewing TV shows instead of uh, talking ASU athletics, but today we're going to keep talking ASU athletics. People would probably prefer that,
3: Rob. Mm. Some of our best segments are like talking about food and and other almost (laughs) unimportant (laughs) things and how I like to only drink half of my pumpkin porter beer. Go ahead
0: now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we got a jam-packed show today talking ASU men's basketball, ASU recruiting with with, uh, the National Signing Day tomorrow. Uh, Wednesday, the, the 7th of February. But first, let's get into the NFL Combine a bit. ASU had five players um, invited to the uh, 2018 NFL Combine, running back Kalen, Kalen Balage, offensive lineman Sam Jones, running back DeMario Richard, linebacker Christian Sam, and defensive lineman Jojo Wicker. So five guys invited this year. Last year, there was just one player that was All-American kicker, Zane Gonzalez. This year, there's five, obviously, but Guys, we were talking about it a little bit off-air. Those five aren't necessarily going to get drafted. Kalen Balazs, the highest projected pick of the of the bunch, is projected to be a 5th to 6th round pick. Sam Jones projected to be a 7th round pick or even undrafted. Demario Richard projected to be undrafted. And Christian Sam and JoJo Wicker both don't even have evaluations made for them and are not expected to be drafted. I'm just going to read a little bit about each of the, uh, the player evaluations that... Uh, are on NFL.com. Chris tweeted a little bit about some of the most important things um, from each player. Uh, the first one on Sam Jones. One of the some of the attributes th- described him were gets up and out of his stance with good quickness, dips and finds some leverage at the point of attack, has difficulties maintaining necessary weight and mass, core strength is below average, gets ragdolled at the point of attack. Some descriptions of uh, good old Sam Jones there. Demario Richard described as built. Like a block of ice, plays with high effort level on every snap, Slith- slithers and churns through grabby defenders and gaps, downhill approach, lacks fluidity and tempo, and unable to gear up rapidly enough after slowing his feet. And then the last player evaluation on Kalen Balage, excellent body composition and frame, clean hands as pass catcher, plays with adequate burst between tackles, plays with early indecisiveness, Field field vision is severely lacking, not nearly as hard to tackle as expected. So guys, what are you, what do you make kind of of the five that got invited to, to the combine, and do you think all five of them will be in the NFL next year?
2: Uh, it's hard to evaluate, but uh, I think it's worth noting that they do have five in the combine. And I think Ray Anderson mentioned this when Todd Graham was getting fired at that press conference, how much of a disappointment it was that they only had one person in uh, in the draft combine the year before, and saying Gonzalez. So at least having five is it's notable. It gets A little bit of exposure for the program. As far as the actual NFL futures, it's hard to get a gauge for each player. Um, Damari Richard, of course, is a very productive running back. Kellen Balazs, you can see it. He has a lot of the physical tools you want for someone at the next level. Christian Sam has probably been regarded for a while as probably the best NFL draft prospect on ASU's team. Uh, Those are some of the names that really stand out to me. I know Sam Jones... Uh, wanted to declare early and so did Jojo Wicker. But the three names that really I'm going to be looking at the most, especially come combine, are probably going to be uh, Richard, Bellage, and Christian Sam.
1: Yeah, I'd agree on that, Fabian. I think that the analysis really really hit the mark on Kalen Bellage. Uh, you know, excellent body composition and frame under the strengths category, but then, uh, you know, athletic but not elusive in weaknesses. And I think that that really t- uh, ties into what they talked about his field vision kind of lacking the way that he kind of runs you know a little bit too upright to find those rush lanes and they'll go unused sometimes uh, which is unfortunate for Kalen Balaj because as many scouts have noted he does have that uh, you know the the NFL ready body and kind of specifications that that a lot of teams are looking for and then tomorrow Richard I think also you know projected to be a priority free agent so there still is a good chance that you know he'll get a shot after the draft if he goes undrafted and they were they were pretty spot on he is built like a block of ice but often with with running backs like those they will sort of you know lack that fluidity and you know that breakaway speed in the open field and so I think that's that's his his issue moving forward
4: you know it's going to be really interesting for ASU Um, I think the fact that they have you know, someone so talented when you look at Caelan Bellage, the potential that I think a lot of people saw in him heading into the season. Chris and I have been talking about this for a while now. The the weaknesses that Zerling mentioned in his analysis of him, was pretty spot on. It's something that we've seen out of Balazs, you know, for the past couple seasons. But I, I don't know whether or not um, it's something that he was ever going to be able to, you know, grow out of. I think it, by the time a, a football player hits their junior senior season, they pretty much are who they are. I don't know whether or not that's a good sign for him moving forward. He looked pretty solid out of the backfield as a receiver at, at the Senior Bowl, but again, like the weaknesses in terms of lacking the field vision, awareness, I, I don't know whether or not he's going to succeed at the next level. will probably be more of an athlete prospect. Uh, I hate to be disparaging
3: of an entire group of people, but generally speaking, the evaluators that you get on Twitter, Social media covering the Senior Bowl and some other things are quacks. It's like they're not good at what they're doing by and large. Now, Kalen Balaj, of course, impressed people in that type of a setting just as he will in an NFL combine because he's a great athlete who looks good on the hoof. You have to actually go back and study his game film. Right. And, and know what you're watching to be able to see the things that we're now looking at on the NFL.com site as an evaluation of Kalen Bellage which happens to be pretty spot on. Um, he is at best a situational third down type of a weapon in the NFL. Um, I personally, you know, looking at the other draft candidates out there, wouldn't probably take Kalen Bellage DeMario Richard, to me, actually has a little bit more potential. Uh, And not to say that I ever think that he's going to be like a starting, you know, RB1 in the NFL, right? But I think that what he gives you... Is something that's more workable mm-hmm. for most teams as an inside runner. So even though he may go undrafted, he has a chance. Despite the lack of speed and some of the issues that are that are present, he has a chance to actually make it because he gets hard yards. He's physical at the point of attack. I think he has some elusiveness. He uh, um, can make people miss in, in the in the immediate. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, in a phone booth. Um, Sam Jones. Uh, again, I think that's very accurate. I've been saying it for a long time. He's going to have to be a zone scheme guy. He struggles to carry weight. He, he's going to have a hard time with physicality uh, at the point of attack. He's a guy that you want to get out more in space and whatnot. I don't think he should have left early, but then again, I didn't think that he was going to add a lot of size mm-hmm. and strength in the next year that was going to make him a much better prospect, per se. I don't know that there's anybody in this draft for ASU that I immediately jumps out to me. Uh, I would... Something you said in the intro um, about the, the other two guys being not forecasted to be drafted. I don't think we know that yet. We have to see what happens with uh, Christian Sam. I think he actually may.
0: I agree with you about Sam. Reflect
3: yeah. well um, when people get a, a, a more detailed look at him and in a, in a combine setting. I think he actually might be the most viable of all of these guys long term. Um, but there's nobody that is a definite draft pick. That ASU has. It is good to see the program for what these uh, you know, these coaches and administrators have set forth as important. It's good for, to see for them to get five guys, but they're going to have to get even more than that and more guys who are first and second day picks because right. they don't have anybody who projects to be that this year.
0: And I agree with you about the fact that uh, Christian Sam could, could impress some people once they get a more detailed look. Just interesting to me though that Christian Sam and JoJo Wick are both for uh, for go or for went in their senior seasons to uh, enter the combine and to try to make it in the NFL. When I thought they each could try to establish themselves with another year um, playing at ASU, and if if they d- both go undrafted and don't sign with a team, I think it's kind of a slap in the face to them as well.
3: Well, put it this way: if they don't catch on, there may be some regrets about what they've chosen to do, right? Because if you don't make it, then how are you feeling about your decision when you had another year to demonstrate better film, more physicality, right. those things would have been, Jojo Wicker definitely could have done that. Uh, Sam Jones could have definitely done that. Right. Right. Um, and, and, and look, I think if those guys get a chance, they can maybe make it. I don't think that they're that far off from being able to play at the NFL level. It's just that there's so many players that are very comparable at the margin. and, how do you differentiate yourself? That that's what that's what has to be taken into consideration here.
0: And Christian Sam had a really great year. We're gonna move on, on to ASU men's basketball now. But I I was just. Impressed with Sam's year, and I thought that if he came back, he might be able to do it two years in a row and maybe prove to NFL scouts that he could do it long-term. A
3: coaching change is what leads people to be frustrated or disillusioned with the experience, especially when you're a JoJo Wicker and you've had four yeah. coaches in four years. Right. You get frustrated, and then maybe you make a decision that's more emotional-based than logical-based. Right.
0: So, guys, let's let's get into ASU men's basketball, though. They had two games in Washington. Max was there covering SunDevilSource.com. ASU lost to Washington 68-64. Um, they continued to struggle against the zone. They were trailing trailing basically the whole game, but they cut it, they, they tied the game up in the second half on a Cody Justice 3. Um, Noah, Dickerson, Noah Dickerson killed ASU down low in the paint. He had 21 points and 16 rebounds. Um, Matisse Thibel set the Washington single-game record for steals with a 6. Um, Evans, Holder, Justice, and White all scored double digits, but it didn't seem like it really was effective scoring. What did you guys? What were your main takeaways from that game? Uh,
1: I think that there were three things that really hurt ASU in this game, the first of which being Noah Dickerson, obviously his huge game, 21 points, 16 rebounds. They're just a not—ASU really didn't have an answer for him uh, in the post all game long. And then obviously, Rob, you mentioned it, MTS thibaults six steals, uh, something that they were able to recreate ASU at, at Washington State. But, I mean, that was detrimental to the flow of the offense, especially with how fast ASU tries to run. And then it seemed that they would get a little bit frustrated and try to, try to force it on the next possession. And then uh, something that not a lot of people have talked about, near the end of that game, David Crisp had about three tough contested layups on consecutive possessions that really put that game away for Washington. So, you know, they just didn't really have an answer defensively, and then when they would fall behind, the would punish them in transition.
2: I think it's something we've talked about, especially for ASU these last couple of weeks in conference play, is if you're playing a team that's going to play a lot of zone defense against you, which pretty much every team in conference play has done, Limit the amount of possessions you have and slow down the pace, which means each possession means so much more, and execution means so much more. Whereas in non-conference, say ASU wanted to get to about 90 possessions a game. You can throw away maybe 10, 15 possessions and still be fine because you have 75 possessions. ASU is struggling to even get to 75 possessions right now because of the defenses that are being played against them. So that means you have to be able to execute, especially down the stretch, which ASU struggled to do. They had the chance, I think, down two with like less than a minute to go. And they got a decent first shot, and then Mickey Mitchell got the rebound, turned the ball over, and then they got the ball again with less than 10 seconds to go, down four, and they could barely even get a three-point shot off before the buzzer expired. So you have to be able to, ex- be able to complete those pl- plays, be able to execute, especially down the stretch, because you know you're not going to have nearly as many opportunities to make mistakes and to maybe thrive off mistakes as you would in the past.
4: So, you know, going back to, you know, the point that you guys just both made, I think, you know, not to, you know, repeat what everyone just said. I think the biggest difference though, like you said, um, Max, Dickerson obviously was the key in the first game, but I thought Thibault. the fact that he was able to, you know, generate that many steals, I don't think ASU was dealt, at least that I can remember, a guard with that kind of length, at least on the perimeter. It showed, you know, what kind of fits that, you know, he can can provide or a player like that can provide. Um, The – I, I think that they did a good job of fighting back. It just again like they, they can't afford to go through these slouch or uh, droughts like Fabian was just saying because every possession is so crucial.
3: So a lot of really good conversation here I think about this game. Uh, props to Josh Gershon, one of the best in the business as an analyst. He said that Matisse Thybul was the best wing defender that he saw in that class. Mm two years before he ever did anything at Washington. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of analysts that do a great job on our network. Um, A couple things that I really took away from this. Uh, Washington, very good at defending the three-point line and not very good at defending two-point shots. Uh, And yet ASU couldn't really capitalize on this because ASU had an inability to get the ball where it needed to on the floor to be able to maximize its offense. Um, We've seen mickey mitchell struggle so much in these types of situations and games offensively he's like i've said it before he's like a bull in a china shop it's all it's 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 there's no finesse right it's it's everything is just super physical and gonna bowl people over like you need to actually slow down be more cerebral get to the places in the zone where you can actually beat a zone and then execute from there. Now, Cody Justice did a pretty good job of getting to that high post, uh, post area and being able to you know, uh, efficiently execute what they were trying to do. The problem is Cody Justice is not a very great athlete and he's not a creator off the dribble. So even he has a limited amount of skill that can take advantage of opponents' weaknesses in the zone. ASU needs better players to be able to, 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 to execute in this regard and a more strategic, dedicated approach to being able to handle these types of defenses than it's been able to demonstrate. In this game, 44% from the field, 5 of 19 from behind the three-point line, almost predictable, yeah. actually, that that was going to happen with what we've seen from this team in the last six weeks of the season. Um, and then one of the things that we've noticed becoming a trend line is bad possessions offensively in key situations, right? ASU gets down to these places and games where it needs to have a really good executed position. And then what possession, pardon me. And then what happens is it all just kind of turns into some, you know, flubbery that happens like Mickey Mitchell somehow having the ball, despite the fact that he played 22 minutes with one field goal attempt and no points, he has the ball with 15 seconds left driving on the baseline into a scrum of large bodies, and then he throws the, the ball away. That happens, and then Bobby Hurley says after the game, well, we had an out-of-bounds play that was set up. That didn't work, and then it, we wanted it to be a free-form kind of a thing. Guess what? You can't have a free form sort of a thing in that situation. You have to have out of bounds play call that dovetails into a half court play call that creates the exact type of shot that you want. You cannot just trust your players to go ahead and free flow it out. In that type of a situation, this this is emblematic of ASU's problems this season against really good coaches who are doing these things. When you play at, a, at um, you know, the Colorado and Utah and you play Oregon at mm-hmm. home, um, you know, so ASU has to show a better dedication of energy.
0: And players have talked about in postgame pressers all year long that, that one of the things they love about Bobby Hurley is the fact that he lets them do he lets them play their game. But I know Fabian has even told me, that works to an extent, and then you need to be able to coach them the rest of the way. And it, just kind of like you said, it seems like having a free-form play there at the very end of a game is just a very bad idea. They, they did regroup, though, and they beat Washington State 88-78 to in Pullman. As a reporter covering the team, I thought it's, for ASU it's a game that's a little too close for comfort against a team in the Pac-12 that has one win in conference. Um, they did shoot 70% in the second half. ASU had 50 points in the paint, 34 points off turnovers. Trey Holder, Romello White, and Shannon Evans had 23 points. Maybe Romello White's best game in a uh, his best Pac-12 game at least. He had 21 points, 9 rebounds. Um, what did you guys take away from how the Sun Devils finished their trip?
2: Uh, I, think, I don't think ASU even necessarily outplayed Washington State. They just outclassed them. I think Washington State got careless. A lot of turnovers down the stretch. I think you mentioned 34 points off turnovers. A lot of it was just ASU just having better players than Washington State down the stretch, because uh, a lot of t- a lot of the same issues that played them against Washington, a lot of the same issues that played them throughout the Pac-12 play, uh, still figured in. They had some trouble getting to the ball, getting the ball into spots they needed to get them in. Uh, although Romello White did have a better game, and they did a slightly better job getting the ball in down low, but they still uh, often at times it was just settling for outside shots. There were a couple stretches there, especially in the first half, where it felt like just a three-point contest between Washington State and Arizona State, and you can't get into that against an inferior opponent like that. You have better bigs. You have better guards. You should be able to get the ball inside and finish. And towards the second half, they started to do that, and they also just forced a bunch of turnovers, got a lot of easy buckets that way, and that's what powered ASU to win. And yeah, ASU
0: it. actually had to come from behind in this one. They were down eight, as many as eight points in the first half, just another something little to note.
1: And the majority of that, Rob, was just the cold shooting that we've seen them open up with in conference play so many times. But you guys touched on both of my points. Um, you know, ASU kind of flipped the script from the first game of Washington. The first game in Washington, they really struggled uh, with turnovers and were kind of killed in the paint by Noah Dickerson. And the next game, they obliterated the Cougars in the paint. It was 50 points uh, for the Sun Devils compared to the Cougars 24 down low. And then, you know, with Romello White going 10 of 11 from the floor, the Cougars had no answer. And then the sixth more turnovers that ASU generated led to a 20-point difference in points off of turnovers. And Shannon Evans, out of nowhere, comes out and has a career high in seals with five in the first half, mostly keeping them in that game. But yeah, I mean, ASU kind of flipped it, became not necessarily a solid defensive team because Washington State still put up 78. That's too much to give up to a team that's near the bottom of the conference. But a few key defensive stops there allowed them to get away from something that Chris noted, which was a late-game situation where they had to come up with a play.
4: And, you know, going back to Fabian's point, because that this has been the most infuriating thing to to me. Like, I think it's been three or four straight games now where ASU will open up the game, hammering an opponent down inside, giving the ball to Romello White, letting him get into a groove, and then they'll, do, they'll go away from it. Then coming back out of the half, they will go back to Romello White for the first couple of possessions, then go back away from it. And my confusion comes where they don't stick with that. And, again, like there, there's been games where he hasn't played at – you know, a high enough level where you can trust them to, you know, put up 21 points like he did against Washington State. Sure, but at the same time, I think a lot of the time the offense was opening up a lot more, especially outside, when you're able to establish Ramel White for a longer period of time than what they're doing. I think they're getting into it early, seeing that they have success, and then going away from it too quickly. And I think, you know, if – ASU wants to be able to, you know, have sustainable offensive firepower. Like you guys are mentioning the free flowing offense works better when you have a dynamic, or not even not even dynamic, just a post presence like Romel White. And to me, you have to keep feeding him in order to get better.
2: And that was the thing in non conference play. Everyone would talk about, yeah, it was guard you. But the reason why they were having the level of success that they were having this year, as opposed to the year before, is because they had the presence inside. Is because they were more balanced. The fact that they were more balanced. Is what made their guards so, so really potent, like really potent against opponents. And lately it seems like they have to sort of sprinkle it in just out of obligation, but it's not necessarily a part of their offense.
3: Kalen's point is is well made and piggybacks on what Fabian said in the previous segment. Mm -hmm. Um, ASU. Shot fifty five percent, almost fifty six percent in this game from the field, and yet when we all watched the game, it was like they had ten to fifteen just wasted possessions where they it was bad shots. Uh, the lack of discipline that I that I referenced earlier in end game situations is also apparent in other points in the game when you go to. Uh, your post player Romello White, the first two times out of halftime, you get easy baskets out of it, and then right? You go away from that. And then you don't, yep. you don't go there for the next six, eight possessions, and you got guys hoisting threes from twenty-four feet with thirty seconds on a shot clock on a couple of those times. You cannot do that. Now, Washington State is basically like a three-point shooting team. That's all they're going to do. Um, they made twelve out of thirty-one threes in the game. They started out making four out of eight. The reason why they lost almost purely is because they their their shooting percentage dropped off dramatically. This is the team going into the game that led the nation. Right. In the amount of threes that they take and the percentage of their three of three of their offense that comes from threes. That just kind of fell off. But this was a great matchup for ASU because there was a lack of interior length and size that it had the ability to exploit. Now, Romello White has a really good game. But why is it that he only takes 11 field goals and goes to the line for two free throws when he makes 10 of his 11 shots? Yeah. You could have just found out the entire front line and even gotten easier three-point <laughs> yep. shots than ASU took. And that, that goes back to ASU's lack of focused uh, determination in terms of how it wants to methodically uh, attack opponents. They have to be much better at that, Rob, going forward.
0: And they've got, they're going to have a little stretch where they're going to be tested in, in how they can face off against tough teams and top teams in the conference. The conference standings now, just for a second, Arizona – still at the top of the the conference 19 and 5 9 and 2 in the conference USC who's coming into Tempe this week at 17 and 7 8 and 3 in conference just below them Washington is 17 and 6 now 7 and 3 in the conference UCLA is number 4 at 16 and 7 7 and 4 in the conference Stanford 13 and 11 7 and 4 in the Pac12 Oregon 15 8 5 and 5 in the Pac12 ASU is just ahead of Utah with a, the non-conference record at six, 17 and 6 Utah's is 13-9, they're both 5 and 9 in conference play. Colorado behind both those teams, 13 and 10, 5 and 6 in conference play. Oregon State at 11 and 11, 3 and 7 in the Pac-12. Cal now is not the last team in the Pac-12, it is Washington State who is now just 1 and 9 in the conference, 9 and 13 overall. Cal is 8 and 16 overall, 2 and 9 in the conference. So guys, let's talk about the the rankings a little bit. The AP poll was released yesterday as it is every every Monday. And ASU is 17 and 6, 5 and 6 in the Pac 12. And this week they are unranked for the first time since before they beat was it was it Xavier? Was that the first time they got ranked? Yeah. Um so the rankings that have, have gone ASU was ranked as high as number three, then slipped to number four, number eleven, number sixteen, number twenty-one, number twenty-five, and now they are unranked. Arizona's the lone pac twelve team that is ranked at number thirteen. Washington had the second most votes in the Pac-12, though, with 54, and Washington seems like they've really been uh, doing better, so I I was surprised that they weren't actually even in the top 25. I thought they might be uh, there, but what do you guys think about the fact that ASU's unranked now? Do you think that's very fair?
3: Yeah. They've lost um, one of their two games for five weeks in a row, so... If you can't win back-to-back games, you don't deserve to be a top 25 team. They're they're uh, still underwater in the Pac-12 now. Ten games in to you know the the conference play, they're going to have to show uh, that they're going to be able to play at a, at a higher level and win more often than not heading down the stretch to to demonstrate that they're a top 25. Now they they get credit for what they did in the non-conference. But everyone is wondering, are they going to be able to show that again? I personally don't think that we're going to see that until maybe the postseason where they can maybe possibly catch fire. But even then, it's very speculative. Uh, The RPI and other metrics, can Palm and whatnot, they have ASU somewhere in the 40s. Number 43. I think ASU should probably be somewhere in a 35 to
0: 45 range. That seems like around where they they really should be. And... Kind of going off of that, Chris, you mentioned some of the, the wins that ASU gets credit for in the non-conference. Xavier ranked in the top ten in the country as well as Kansas right now, so those are wins that ASU is still getting credit for. You wrote an article about that last week about how you get credit for just all the same wins, so something that they still can look forward to even though people have been saying that it matters how you do at the end of the at the end of the season.
1: And now ASU has a pretty good opportunity coming up uh, in conference play to tr- sort of make up ground in the top top part of the pack 12 they play three of the top four teams in the conference in arizona washington and excuse me arizona usc and ucla none of these are going to be easy though luckily for asu they get them at home but this does i'm not sure that if they take two of three that they'll bounce back into the top 25 but that is absolutely crucial to get back up to someplace like seven and six in conference and try to switch places with maybe someone like ucla
2: yeah this is probably the most important three-game stretch of asu season i would say um all you could say that Xavier-Kansas State stretch was pretty difficult, but as far as what it means for ASU going forward and going into this next month, it's important because it's going to see not only how if ASU can bounce back, but how competitive is ASU going to be in the Pac-12 tournament, how competitive are they going to be in an NCAA tournament setting. Because these are t- three teams that have a really strong case to make it to the tournament. U of A is going to guarantee you're going to make it. And I think it's also big, just for confidence-wise. You have five of your last seven games are at home. Like you need to use this as a situation or a chance to sort of try to catch fire, because if you're going to do it at any point the rest of the season, get a sort of a second wind on the season. This is the time.
4: Okay, I, I I'm just jumping back on it. I I think that it's big that they're having you know hosting these games at home too, and the players mentioned it a lot. Hurley mentions it a lot. I know that they haven't been able to pick up, you know, they keep splitting everything, but uh, I think the fact that they're going to be at home for five of the, the final seven, I think that's a pretty good breather for ASU considering what Hurley was mentioning early in the year, how they were facing so many different defenses. On top of the fact that they were traveling so much. So you you take a difficult stretch. I think going into the final run, maybe they can kind of build off that underdog mentality now that they're finally out of the top twenty five. We'll see if they're able to spark anything again since you know now no one is really paying attention to them for real this time.
3: I, I wanna just echo what Fabian said. Uh, ASU's five and six right now in the league. The next three games are at home, USC Thursday, UCLA Saturday, Arizona next Thursday. Okay. okay. Five of their last seven uh, regular season games at home. Yeah, but ASU needs to win two of these next three games. Okay, if you let's just hypothetically say that you you only win one of the three, right? Then you're sitting at six and eight, and then you got to go to Oregon and Oregon State. Now we've already talked. You probably need to get to nine wins somehow yeah. in Pac-12 games to be able to make the tournament. To not be on the squarely on the bubble at a minimum. Uh, they have to win a couple games at home. USC is a good basketball team. They're UCLA basketball can team. easily beat ASU. UCLA just beat uh, USC. Correct, and and of course Arizona is capable of beating ASU and Tempe. We're talking about three games that are just crucial to ASU's uh, uh, postseason aspirations, Rob.
0: And I just I, I want to kind of note that ASU was ranked for ten straight weeks. They've only been ranked longer in five seasons in program history than that in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. 1994 and 1995, 80 and 81, 74 and 75, and 62 and 63. So something of an achievement, though, for this team definitely is that they were ranked 10 weeks in a row, ranked as high as number three. People thought that they should have been ranked number one.
3: It's an achievement, but you have to also look at it in terms of uh, it, it's a pretty bad indictment of where this team has been at, that you start out 12-0 and 0 and you're out of the, the rankings a month later. You know it doesn't exactly, but and it and you it also reflects that you'd rather have it be the opposite way, right? You'd rather be building up as the season's going on, as opposed to falling off as the season's gone. We didn't also anticipate this because ASU actually got healthier and more of its personnel as the season unfolded. So it's not the right trend line for ASU.
0: Okay, so I'm going to ask you guys each right now. I want predictions. Who thinks that they make the NCAA tournament?
2: Uh, I think they still make it. I think, I think something sort of catches a little bit. They may find a little bit more of their rhythm during these last seven games or so, and going into the Pac-12 tournament. I think this team is just too talented, really, to not be a tournament team. Uh, it's hard to see uh, them maybe falling this slow, but I wouldn't. It's obviously not a lock. Uh,
1: you know, I I'm gonna go with that they don't make the tournament, and it's just I don't see them winning two of these next three games at home. I think Arizona and USC are just too talented, and, you know, if UCLA can just catch fire and pretty much beat anyone in the conference, so I would not bet on Arizona State winning either or, you know, two of these games, and then I don't think that they sweep that Oregon road trip. They've shown to have issues with Oregon State already, let alone on the road, and they already lost to Oregon, uh, you know, quite handedly uh, in terms of skilled players there, so I would say that they don't if, you know, I'm forced.
4: I think they find a way, um, you know, <laughs> not not to harp on uh, intangibles and whatnot again, though. Like, this is a team that really builds and feeds off being an underdog. I think they're in that position again. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, as Chris mentioned, I think having new pieces really threw off the chemistry, if anything, for this team. And the fact that the players have gone through their slumps, I think, there is a way that they can find a way to put it together. It's going to be through this stretch. I think they do end up picking two out of the three and you know solidifying themselves as a tournament team.
3: I think it's going to be a nail-biter all the way, Rob. I think ASU squeaks in literally maybe the last four in. Um, They're not going to be just really comfortably in, I don't think, the tournament. It just doesn't seem that way. What gives them a better chance than most other Pac-12 teams that have been in this position historically is their high RPI. That's not really going to drop that much. Because even if you lose to USC or Arizona or UCLA, those teams have pretty good RPIs as well. Right, they're not going to drop very much. so, So ASU right now has an RPI of 44. Pretty much all the teams... It's actually 43. 44 was their last one. Pardon me, 43. All the teams that have been nine-win teams and they've been in the 50s and RPI or better, historically, they all make it. So, so it may take ASU needing to win a game or maybe even two games in the Pac-12 tournament if they finish 8-10 and 10 in the regular Pac-12. Uh, I think that they, that they do make it, but it's going to be a lot tighter
0: than anybody would have thought uh, just a month ago. I, I agree with that. I think they do make the tournament. I think they squeak in um, from all the for all the reasons that you just said, Chris, and and that of Kaelin as well. But let's let's now move on to what ASU has right on their plate right now, which is USC, a good basketball team coming in on Thursday. That game's at 9 p.m. on ESPN two. Uh, USC is going to be mad coming off a loss to UCLA on the road. They lost 82 79. USC leads the conference in assists per game with over 16. Third-best scoring D in the Pac-12. They've got some really good players. They've got Shemezi Metu, Benny Boatwright, Jordan McLaughlin, Elijah Stewart, Jonah Matthews. They've got a lot of talent on that team. That's going to be a tough game. What do you guys think ASU has to do going into that game to get a win?
4: I think it's going to come down to whether or not they can slow down Boatwright and Metu. I think the size that the two of them possess, especially Metu down low, it's going to be a handful for ASU's bigs. We've seen them get in the foul trouble before. Um, and and On top of that, he's extremely athletic. Um, It'll be a big game for Daquan Lake. I think he's going to have to have a significant impact on the defensive end. And and again, it'll be a good matchup, at least on the perimeter between McLaughlin and Holder. I think they cancel each other out. But if Shannon Evans can have a good game, I think ASU has a pretty good shot, actually.
2: Uh, USC has struggled in Tempe. I think they haven't won in Tempe since 2008 or something like that. But uh, I just think athletically it's going to be a challenge for Arizona State, especially on the front line. It's probably as athletic of a front line as ASU is going to see other than maybe U of a just because of what DeAndre Eaton brings. But it's just a difficult matchup for ASU just for the athletes that USC can bring. I think they could honestly man up ASU and still do a pretty decent job against them. So even if they don't necessarily rely on a heavy zone, it's going to present ASU with some issues.
1: Yeah, this will be a dogfight. I think that. The ASU just needs to answer its three or four looming questions. You know, are they going to be able to feed Ramella White consistently? Are they going to be able to avoid a slow start at the beginning? And then near the end of the game, when this game is, you know, inevitably within five with a few minutes to go, are they going to have a game plan when it comes down to as Chris noted earlier that last possession, is it going to be Mickey Mitchell launching a three that ends up in an air ball, or Mickey Mitchell diving into a zone that had killed the team the entire game? Uh, So I think if they're able to answer two or three of those questions with with a good answer, then they should be able to win it, but it should be really close.
3: Total toss-up game. USC's personnel is arguably the best in the Pac-12. It's right there Mm -hmm. with Arizona. uh, I would say the size of USC makes it uh, a a difficult matchup for ASU, right? Because – Uh, Benny Boatwright, who's coming off of a minor injury, you know, maybe that is ASU gets him at a little better time. But the combination of Boatwright. Uh, Nick Reykjavik and Chemezi Metu is really tough for ASU to handle. ASU is going to have to avoid getting into foul trouble Mm -hmm. in this game. There's been so many instances in in which some really silly fouls by Romello White and Daquan Lake have put ASU into bad... And even Scheibel. And even Scheibel into really bad situations. They have to be able to avoid that. And then they need to get... uh, more strategically sound play against a zone. They're going to see another zone
0: against USC, and they have to demonstrate that they're going to be better at attacking that. I agree that is going to be a huge challenge. He's averaging almost 16 points a game and almost 8 rebounds per game. He's just a beast down low, and if ASU gets into foul trouble, I don't really know how, how they can stop him. UCLA then on Saturday at 5 p.m. That game is going to be on Pac-12 Networks. UCLA, so they're 12-2 at home, but they're just 1-4 away, so maybe a chance for ASU to... If they lose potentially to USC to get right back on track against UCLA, um, as I just mentioned, obviously they beat USC um, 82-79 in a close game. They've got the second best scoring averaging team in the in the Pac-12, the third worst scoring defense in the Pac-12, and they lead the Pac-12 though in an area that might be really tough for the Sun Devils: in offensive rebounding. They've got obviously Aaron Holiday, who's averaging almost, 19, uh, almost 20 a game, excuse me, good for one of the the top in the conferences. Uh, and then Thomas Welsh who's averaging a triple double 13 and 10 per game double double
3: double double yeah triple double is what you get in
2: and
0: out oh excuse me excuse me double double he's averaging 13 and 10 a game he's a senior what do you guys think about the matchup against UCLA on Saturday
2: I think you it actually might be a good matchup for ASU especially being at home just cuz UCLA like you said struggles on the road it seemed like maybe they're not the best Fit as a team, a lot of immature players, a lot of young players, uh, and that's going to factor heavily in ASU's favor. You have a lot of seniors, a lot of seniors with a lot to play for. State, and I think it leans heavily in ASU's favor. I I just say that
1: these teams are so similarly constructed in terms of Aaron Holiday, uh, you know, Thomas Welsh, and and Prince Ali, even uh, coming off the bench. All of those guys shoot at least thirty nine percent from three, and that is just—I mean—that's. To your, to your guys' point, that's, that's just going to be kind of a streaky game, I would imagine. It's just going to be which team uh, can actually effectively use the three-point line better. And that poses for both a shootout and a game that should just be runs back and forth. I think that this is the one of the three that ASU should be the most confident in in this next stretch at home. I definitely agree with that. Yeah.
3: This is, this, this is a game where ASU needs to win at home. Just flat out needs to win, given where it's currently at in its schedule and then also what it has – Facing in the next slew of games, I do think Aaron Holiday is a great two uh, two way def- player. Really good defender, creates for teammates, shoots at a high clip. Thomas Welsh is like money from that mid range spot, yeah. like the twelve
0: foot jumper, twenty foot jumper. He's expanded his range this year yeah. too, guys. Like he's good. pretty good. Made the game winning three against USC. Yeah,
3: but I just think this team really isn't that deep, and they're not that athletic with That's their size. So yeah. And and those are things that actually really bode well for ASU in this matchup. ASU has to win this game.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, just bouncing off that point. I mean, I was going to talk about Aaron Holiday and how much I loved him, but, I mean, All he right. basically did it for me. I think he, he probably is the best two-way player, and he's probably one of the better players you know, pro prospects, I think, that ASU is going to face. But again, that depth that UCLA has, it. I think it's going to come down, again, to perimeter defense and how active ASU is and how we've seen in past games. Hurley has mentioned, you know, their defense initiates their transition offense, how they're able to out-sprint teams. I don't think they'll be able to out-sprint USC. I think they can out-sprint um, UCLA.
1: And it'll be interesting to see if that, defensive performance from shannon evans and even trey holder had a few steals against washington state Mm -hmm. if that carries over i think hurley said that after the game that shannon just you know knew that they couldn't lose this one well i i mean it'll be interesting to see if that actually materializes if they actually try to get steals uh in this next round of games but that's a good point caitlin
0: yeah one thing i'm really curious about against both these teams actually is how asu starts i know max referenced it against washington state when they were trailing in the first half is how are you going to start against two good basketball teams at home they haven't been great at at starting, uh, And it's just going to be interesting to see how they can kind of focus now that they're the underdog in most games they're going into. So, guys, quick predictions for the weekend.
2: I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb. I think that for the first time in Bobby Hurley's tenure at Arizona State, they sweep a Pac-12 weekend series. I think it's a tough matchup against USC, but I think just backs against the walls a situation that benefits Arizona State in this situation. And as I said before, I think AAC's got to get a matchup against UCLA, just with the ability to probably get both teams going back up and down the floor. It favors ASU, so I I think they go for the sweep. Uh, I'm going to say that they
1: take one of two, as they have the past few weeks. Uh, You know, USC just poses too many personnel challenges, and UCLA, I mean, we say that they should beat the Bruins, but, I mean, that's obviously not a given at all compared to other teams that we say that they should beat. So I I say they take one of two, and then probably lose to Arizona next week as well.
4: Oh, wow. Um, are we going that far? Um, no, just I, this weekend, please. As, okay, okay, just this week. Um, I, I mean, you look at you, again, like Max just said, like USC and how Chris was saying before, they're way too athletic. They have big, bigs inside. I don't, I don't see ASU playing well enough to beat them. But against UCLA, I think there, there's teams that play to the level of their opponent, and I think, again, ASU is one of those teams. I think that's something that will benefit them against UCLA. Especially again, like in terms of depth, I, I think they just have enough playmakers. When you look at totality of the roster, where they can match up well against UCLA and find a way to win, whether it's hot shooting or Rommel White finding a way, you know, to perform well against Thomas Welsh.
3: I'm gonna say ASU also splits, uh, more likely to beat UCLA than USC. Um, they could win either game, of course. Maybe you could win both, but one in one in one, and then I'm I think that they the Arizona game becomes just enormous uh, in a week.
0: I agree that they split uh, the coming weekend. But let's quickly talk a little bit about ASU uh, football, some recruiting. National Signing Day obviously is tomorrow, uh, February 7th. Uh, Chris, let's just preview uh, National Signing Day a little bit. ASU currently has 13 commits, 11 of whom have signed. ASU is waiting on a lot of decisions. Chris, you wrote this article, Sun Devils should be booming on National Signing Day. What do you think the state is with ASU recruiting at the moment?
3: Essentially what has happened, Rob, is ASU's worked with some of its uh, recruits who are essentially uh, silent commits right now. And and um, those guys are going to be announcing uh, their intent on uh, tomorrow as we're taping this on Wednesday. Um, uh, ASU has 11, as you said, who were signed, two who are public commitments. Tomorrow they'll probably get Merlin Robertson, who is uh, the highest-ranked uh, guy that they're on right now, a linebacker from Sarah High School. Uh, Sari Crosswell is a defensive back from Long Beach Poly, where, uh, of course, Antonio Pierce was coaching. Uh, Jermaine Lole was just offered by Tennessee yesterday, but still looks like he'll probably end up at ASU. And uh, I think Cameron Phillips, who decommitted from SMU, uh, Houston defensive back, is probably going to end up at ASU. And uh, I think Jarrett Bell, uh, Norco, offensive lineman, who's between ASU and Nebraska probably ends up at ASU. Talked about few, him last week, A yeah. few other guys that are possibilities, um, and that would be Jordan Porter, wide receiver from from Etiwanda. Uh, you have Maurice Washington, who's a, uh, an athlete slash running back from Dallas, who's between Nebraska and ASU. Solomon Enos is a wide receiver locally. Mm-hmm. Penn State, Utah, more likely than ASU. I think that Gunnar Romney will probably stick with BYU, but ASU's another option. And then uh, there's Darian Butler, who's a linebacker who may squeeze into this class or be a gray shirt possibility. We're going to cover the heck out of this tomorrow. And then we're going to all meet again for uh, a a free podcast and a premium podcast on Thursday in which we break all this stuff down, Rob. So looking forward to doing that with you guys again here in a couple of days.
0: So Chris, thank you for just saying a bunch of the names that we're going to be looking out for tomorrow and then going forward into the spring football season, which is actually just right around the corner. As Chris mentioned, though, there's going to be two podcasts uh, airing Thursday specific to ASU football, everything about National Signing Day, recruiting, Chris's analysis, all that and more. So thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. For Maxwell Madden, Fabian Ardaya, Kalen Jones, and site publisher Chris Cartman, I'm your host, Rob Werner, saying so long, and thank you for tuning in.